A Nazi in the House of Commons. In Canada? It seems unthinkable, it seems like a bad joke or the plotline of a horrible Pulp Fiction novel, and yet there we were on September 22, 2023, as Yaroslav Hunka was introduced by House Speaker Anthony Rota after a speech to a joint session of Parliament by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. Yes, a Nazi in the House of Commons said many of us, myself included, outraged that the Trudeau government had given the Russian government a propaganda win. Vladimir Putin's Russia has been claiming since the beginning that they needed to invade Ukraine to take out all the Nazis in that country. And here was Canada's entire parliament cheering on a man who had fought in a Nazi unit. Were we too quick to rush to judgment, though? Were we too harsh? What is the truth about the 14th Waffen-SS Galicia Division and how so many members ended up in Canada? Hello and welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host, and the conversation you're about to hear won't be an easy one for some. Miroslav Chandri is an academic and author and the man behind the book In the Maelstrom the Waffen-SS Galicia Division and its legacy. The book was published in March 2023 before these events in Parliament took place, but it's an in-depth history of the unit. We'll discuss what happened in Parliament, the history and legacy of a military unit that he admits is one of the more controversial units of its day, and the context that the events of so many decades ago took place in. As I said, this conversation will cause controversy for some, on more than one side, in fact, but what we hope is that it also sparks a conversation about Canada's less-than-perfect past and what we can learn from it. Professor Chandri is a professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba, but we connected with him in New York, where he's currently lecturing at Columbia University. Miroslav Gandry, thanks for the time. You're very welcome. Let me start with the incident that precipitated our decision to reach out to you. The honoring of Yaroslav Hunka in the Parliament of Canada while Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was there. Were you watching when it happened? And if so, what what did you think? No, I wasn't watching. I'm speaking to you from New York, where I'm teaching at Columbia University. But what I thought was this was some colossal mess. Uh, Somebody had just uh, goofed. Um, This should not have happened. Uh, There's certainly, uh, the the optics were terrible for Ukrainians. The optics are terrible for Canadians. Um, And uh, certainly uh, I am aware and other Ukrainians are aware that the division is not celebrated and it's it's just not uh, allowed uh, even in ukraine today uh, any any dis- any attempt to to celebrate the division or to to congratulate its members is just simply not allowed i mean ukraine is a is fighting for democracy fighting for a for independence it wants to be a modern ukrainian country it's not interested in any kind of um, re- relationship with uh, uh, a, f- a group that uh, fought for uh, for for the Nazis, and that's been stated by the president, by 
uh, on the president's website and by many, many Ukrainians. Now, of course, every single member of parliament stood up and clapped. And there's many with Ukrainian backgrounds, proud Ukrainian Canadians on I can say at least the Liberals and the Conservatives. I'm not sure about the NDP, but at least the Liberals and Conservatives, several, and one of them was in the front row um, cheering along, that, of course, being Christia Freeland. She's not the only one. But should those MPs have known when they heard what Speaker Anthony Rota was saying, that he's fought in the first Ukrainian division, should they have known and went, oh, wait a minute, I, I won't clap? Well, I think they're all blindsided. No one in their right minds would have thought that um, this was uh, a member of the uh, Galicia division. Uh, I think they simply uh, assumed that that the Rota uh, had checked uh, and knew who this person was. Um, The information only came out later. Would you say that the... 14th SS division, Galatian, were they Nazis or did they fight with Nazis? Because that's been part of the discussion. You, you know, you've written the definitive book on them, so how would you describe them? Well, you're absolutely right. The word Nazi or SS is used as a term of abuse. Technically, no Ukrainian could be a member of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazi Party. Only Germans could be members. Similarly, only Germans or Germanic people of Germanic background could be members of the SS. That was simply not uh, possible for Slavs, who uh, the Germans considered subhuman during the war. So that's a mistake. That's not. Uh, that, that's just a a term of abuse. But as you say, they were aligned. Uh, as a military formation, they were al- aligned with Nazi Germanys. So uh, that's, uh, that's uh, why this term comes up. There is this uh, other uh, way of thinking about the term Nazi, and that is an ideological, uh, an ideological view of, uh, of uh, the, the, you know, the adjective Nazi. Um, for the most part, Ukrainians were not interested in uh, Nazi ideology, uh, totalitarianism, racism, fascism. The whole point of them joining the division, if we're talking about the Galicia division, the whole point of them joining the division was to get the training, uh, the, uh, the knowledge of modern warfare, and create an army of their own, which at the appropriate time or the opportune moment they could uh, turn into a struggle for independence. That's the ideology that they um, accepted. That's, that's what they told themselves. That was not what the Germans said when they were recruiting them, but the Germans knew that that was what Ukrainians were telling themselves and that privately the recruiters were saying, we have to go along with uh, with the uh, overt uh, uh, statements that the Germans are making, but privately we are creating our own army, which we hope to use uh, in in uh, in at the end of the war, in the chaos at the end of the war, 
to fight for independence. Now, whether that was ever possible isn't a different question. This could have been, this should be seen today as a pipe dream. It was never a possibility. Is there documentation showing that? Because I know you you write in the book uh, that there has been a longstanding, since the end of the war, a longstanding attempt to rewrite the narrative. And it started in, in the camps in Italy and in Britain, it can, can, continues today to a degree in in Ukraine. Um, do you know that that's what they were saying to themselves privately, uh, or is that part of the um, rehabilitation narrative of this division? No, I think it, I think they were saying that to themselves. The people who uh, volunteered were usually high school students, people who completed completed high school education, a lot of them. And they were patriots. Uh, they had been, um, they had seen what uh, the Soviet Union had done to Galicia, to Galician society in the 22 months um, that preceded uh, the uh, German invasion. They were very angry at what had happened within the Soviet Union. Um, and they were uh, quite prepared to fight against the, the country they they thought was their primary enemy, which was the Stalin and the Soviet Union. So I think that was the the, the, the motivation. It was repeated uh, during the recruitment. Uh, it was uh, it, th- this uh, narrative was repeated in the memoirs in uh, many documents afterwards, and uh, there's no reason to doubt that. In, in back us up then, because you said the invasion of Galicia, and I think a lot of people won't know the history that at that point in time, Ukraine was divided between areas occupied by the Soviets and until the war, areas controlled by Poland. And in the Galicia division was from the side covered by Poland. Did they see themselves as Ukrainians? Galatians, what did they see themselves as? No, definitely as Ukrainians. There was a very large minority in Poland. Uh, about one, one third of Poland, interwar Poland, was uh, minorities. And there was a very large, the largest minority were Ukrainians. Uh, some people say around 5 million. And they had been promised after the um, First World War and the creation of uh, a renewal of uh, the Polish state, they had been promised autonomy. Uh, The Entente powers uh, instructed Poland as it took charge of uh, Eastern Galicia that uh, Ukrainians should be given autonomous rights, uh, cultural rights, and so on. And they had been denied this. So they were upset they were they knew that uh, educational opportunities uh, uh, professional opportunities had been limited um, and uh, they were they could not see themselves winning autonomy uh, through the democratic process some did there was a democratic party in uh, Galicia Ukrainian Democratic Party, which worked through Parliament. 
but many people thought that this uh, this had uh, been a, a failure. This attempt to create uh, to win rights to create autonomy had been a failure in the interwar years. And then uh, when the Soviet Union um, divided Poland, uh, divided up Poland with Germany, they saw that they, they got their first taste of uh, Soviet rule. And it was horrific. Uh, all institutions, all Ukrainian institutions were closed. Something like 190,000 people were either uh, shipped to Siberia or arrested or, or killed. Uh, you know, it was a devastation of, of that society. And, and the people in that part, in, in Galicia, the Ukrainians inside what had been interwar war Poland, they would have been acutely aware of what was happening to their, their brethren in the eastern part of Ukraine. That's correct. Uh, which they, was millions killed in the preceding yes. decade. Yes. Uh, the, if you read the G Ukrainian Galician newspapers, they co covered uh, the famine in which 4 million people died. Uh, they covered the destruction of the uh, um, what's known in Ukraine as the uh, as the cultural renaissance, an entire generation of writers and cultural figures who um, who created a, a new literature, a new cultural profile in the 1920s. They were all destroyed in the 1930s. So yes, uh, they were aware of this, and they were they were. Uh, uh, primed uh, to fight the Soviet Union. This is one of the things I've been thinking about is um, how how do you react when your choice is Stalin or Hitler? I mean, these are two of the worst choices that I can think of in you know in our modern era. But that's what these these young people were faced with. And so, you know, they've been criticized, the Ukrainians have been criticized for fighting with the Soviets. They've also been criticized for fighting with the Germans. Um, you know, I, I know there was a small group of people basically running a resistance fighting force, but that, that was small, wasn't it? I mean, it, your, your basic choice yeah. was join the Germans or join the, the Soviets. Well, this is one of the tragedies of uh, Ukrainian society. When you do not have, uh, when you're a stateless nation, uh, you're always uh, struggling from a position of weakness. And the tragedy for Ukrainians during the war was they ended up in every army. They were drafted. They were conscripted. Uh, every every force uh, drew in Ukrainians, and that's actually one reason why. Uh, the, the people who created or wanted to create the Galicia Division uh, argued that this way we'd have at least Ukrainian officers, uh, we, we would have some control uh, over, over this army. But you're absolutely right. The choices were uh, terrible. Uh, they were all bad. You, I, I mean, the story I always tell people is imagine... Imagine early in 1944, as the Red Army front is advancing, what you what you could, might, ought to have done. You could have 
You could have uh, been sh been uh, sent to Germany uh, along with two million other Ukrainians to, uh, for slave labor to work in factories and and farms uh, under Allied bombing. You could have joined the so-called Baudienst, which was forced labor, building fortifications, repairing roads and railways. It was back-breaking work, 12 hours a day, half an hour off for lunch. Ooh, well, not really a lunch at all, but just, just um, uh, a quick break, uh, half a day off on Sundays. You could have waited and, and, and uh, escaped to the forests to join the so-called partisans, but there was lawlessness in the forests too. There were, there were gangs roaming around. Uh, some some boys tried that and were sent back. Uh, the 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 people in the forest, the partisans, said, "Look, we can barely feed ourselves. Uh, go back and try and get some education." Or you could you could wait for the Soviets to advance. And the horror there was that the Red Army immediately took all able-bodied men. Uh, from the age of 17 to 45, put them on the front ranks, often with one rifle between half a dozen of them, and just uh, sent them against the Germans. They were mown down. The the the, uh, the casualties were horrific. Uh, that that ancient time. Russian tradition of cannon fodder that they're still using right. today in the invasion of right. Ukraine, just keep putting bodies out there to... Right make the the enemy use all their ammunition. That's absolutely true. And so in that situation, um, the, the boys, and there are many stories like this, the boys were, uh, that the Germans uh, found, which simply put against the wall and told you either, we're not going to leave you for the Reds to put on their front line. You can either uh, join the division or we'll shoot you here. And they actually did that. So quite a few of the uh, uh, the recruits, if you want to put it that that way, from 1944 were ac actually just saving their own lives. They entered the division just to to escape uh, uh, an even worse fate. Was the Galicia division involved with war crimes? Uh, well, there have been many, many investigations, uh, and all of them have uh, not ha have not found uh, the accusations to be uh, to, to for, for the evidence uh, of the accusations to to be true. Now, I have to I have to put a caveat in there. Um, not all the people who entered the division. Uh, were were thoroughly checked. There were some people who didn't have thorough checks, but the basic the basic uh, facts are that as a division, as a military unit, they did not uh, commit war crimes, or these war crimes have not been found. But some individuals who joined may have committed war crimes before they joined. Uh, in other words, they attached themselves to the division later in the war. And there is one group, it's the 4th and the 5th so-called Galician Volunteer, the Galician SS Volunteer Regiments, the 4th and 5th Regiments, who um, 
most of the accusations of war crimes pertain to those two groups. And the confusion is this. Those two groups were taken from the initial batch of recruits to the division. About 13,000 were sent to the division, but about 6,000 or 6,500 were sent to these uh, regiments. And the two regiments were used for what's called police work. Uh, the division itself was only to fight on the Eastern Front, only to fight as a frontline division. That's how it was formed. But without knowledge of the military board and the, the liaison people uh, and the Ukrainian community, this, this group of six or so thousand were sent to the, uh, to the volunteer uh, regiments. And uh, they, all the accusations that I have come across uh, of war crimes pertain to these two divisions. Now, this is where the confusion comes in. First of all, they had the name Galician in the title. Secondly, they were many of them were given the Galician division insignia, the badge, and they wore it. So you can see how victims or people who saw them just assumed they were members of the division, and that confusion still uh, still continues. So we do have, though... University of Alberta giving back donations um, from the Honka family, looking at donations from others, um, the Governor General apologizing for giving the Order of Canada to Peter Saverin, who was Chancellor of the University of Alberta at one point, um, and claims that, well, they were actually very close collaborators with the Nazis. So what what are we to take from the competing allegations then? Well, the life these people had after the war uh, was a different life. We're talking about people who were uh, upright members of their community, of Canadian, the Canadian community, people who contributed to the development of multiculturalism in, in Canada. Uh, they donated money for various causes, good causes, educational causes, um, and uh, this was never questioned. What we're talking about is uh, uh, a, a past, a perception that these men may have done something during the war, in spite of the fact that they, they had been uh, checked. Uh, there had been a, a long uh, process of uh, of uh, uh, interviewing and looking at, at different members. Not all of them, but many of them had been looked at. Uh, so what we're talking about is a sudden knee-jerk reaction by people who are not were not aware uh, that such a division existed. Uh, had not looked at the Duchenne Commission's report or knew much about the Second World War or Ukrainians in the Second World War. So I think there's been uh, some degree of uh, uh, education that has taken place since this, uh, this incident in Parliament, but you know, people are still catching up with, uh, with learning uh, what this division actually was. 
And of course, the word Waffen-SS uh, and throwing around terms like Nazi immediately uh, makes it look like these people were monsters, which is exactly what some of the press has said. You know, they, they use terms like monsters and, and uh, you know, the worst, uh, the most guilty uh, parties during the war. Uh, none of this really is true. But, 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 yeah, but I mean, it's, we, it's on the cover of your book, though, in the Maelstrom, and the subhead yeah. uh, subtitle is The Waffen-SS Galatia Division and Its Legacy. Right. So were they a Waffen-SS division? Oh, yes. No, 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 definitely. They were the 14th Waffen-SS uh, division, and uh, that title uh, it was their official title. But there were three groups in the Waffen-SS. Uh, there were the Germans, there were the Germanic uh, divisions formed from Germanics, Germanic nations of Germanic background. And then towards the end of the war, after 43, the Germans needed the manpower. So at that point, they allowed Slavs and, and other, other non-Germans, non-Germanic peoples to form some divisions. And the designation there was slightly different. It was Der Waffen-SS, of the Waffen-SS. Waffen and that signified that they were non-Germans and non-Germanics. But yes, they were, uh, they were uh, uh, the official designation was uh, Waffen-SS. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to dig more into this. You know, we've got a lot of accusations flying around. You're saying we've got to learn a bit more history. There are calls to take down memorials and cemeteries, um, and questions about how so many people from an SS division got into Canada. So hopefully we can unpack that when we come back. So were the men who were in the Galatia division Nazis or not? I have written several columns describing them as Nazis, because in my view, if you're in the Waffen-SS, if you're fighting the Wa as part of the Waffen-SS, then Yes, that would qualify you as a Nazi. And I know there is the um, the argument that says, well, no, only Germans could be members of the party, but you're you're fighting for that. Would you say that myself and many other columnists and reporters have been unfair in using that description? Well, technically, they were not Nazis. They could not be Nazis, as I've said, because they could not be members of the Nazi party. But they were aligned with the Nazi Germany. And so from the point of view of, uh, of uh, a person facing the, uh, the, uh, the German army, uh, yeah, they were fighting for Nazi Germany. And that's one of the... Actually, this debate, this discussion that you're entering now is uh, one of the discussions that took place within the division itself. The historians of the division, the veterans who wrote the, the, the histories and who uh, were the spokespeople from the division, had a long debate. Um, and uh, many of them said it was a huge mistake to join the uh, uh, the division, the Galicia division, because they never had an opportunity and never would have had an opportunity to break away and uh, 
and uh, create an, an army for fighting for independence. Secondly, they said that they were used by the Germans. There's no question about it. The Germans used them for their own aims and purposes. Uh, and a lot of people within the division were quite aware of that and, and said that's why it was a huge mistake. So they themselves, uh, the, the thinkers, the, the thoughtful people in the division, uh, were prepared to say that, yeah, we, we made a, a big mistake. We actually fought for the Nazis. Was there, oh, you, you've said they, they hoped to um, uh, form their own army and, and fight for f- uh, freedom eventually, but was there also a sense that, well, maybe this Hitler guy will be better than that Stalin guy? No, I don't think that was the case. All of these people were recruited after 43. They could see that uh, Stalin was coming and Hitler would lose the war. This was after Stalingrad, after North Africa, the defeats of the Germans in North Africa. They were aware that um, uh, at the war's end there there would be chaos. But they had also seen what the Germans were capable of. They had seen Jews rounded up, taken outside towns and shot. They had seen their own people hung, um, you know, on town squares. They had seen people being, you know, hit in the face because they uh, they uh, refused to move off the sidewalk in front of a German. Uh, some people had been whipped uh, trying to enter a a, a streetcar or, or a train that was marked only for Germans, they were well aware uh, of uh, what the Germans were capable of. I, I don't think ideologically they were uh, interested in anything like uh, support for Germany or, or Nazism. You have to also bear in mind that one of the conditions that Ukrainians gave for creating the division was that they should have chaplains, Christian chaplains, um, and these people were there precisely to uh, to um, negate uh, Nazi ideology, and the Germans themselves knew that why the Ukrainians had had uh, had volunteered. They knew that they wanted their own army, so they abridged and and uh, adapted the Weltanschauung, uh, the instructions, the ideological instructions. They focused not on talking about the superiority of Germans or the uh, inferiority of other races. What they talked about was the need to fight Bolshevism, to fight on the Eastern Front. So uh, all these all these uh, uh, tendencies showed that really the discussion within the division itself was not a, in any way favorable to Nazi Germany. They, w- they had their own agenda. Uh, and they spoke about the possibility within, within the division. They spoke about the possibility of breaking away and joining the underground, uh, of uh, killing their German officers, and uh, and trying to fight their way to to the Adriatic or to to the Allies. These were discussions that took place, of obviously outside of German earshot, but within the division. And at the end of the war, many of them were quite prepared 
to, uh, to fight on the Allied side. They hoped, in fact, they would be allowed to fight on the Allied side. And frankly, some of them did. Uh, one group uh, 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 was able to break out uh, of their camp in uh, training camp in, uh, in France and joined the French resistance and fought in the French resistance. Other soldiers uh, joined the French Foreign Legion at the end of the war. Some fought for, some became uh, members of the U.S. Army. Uh, some of them were trained by the British and parachuted into into Ukraine uh, in the later 40s. These latter, the last ones, were picked up uh, by the Soviets and uh, and shot because Kim Philby was. Uh, was giving away the information, and uh, and uh, the Soviets were prepared for them. So, w- what did they do? It was about an eighteen-month time frame that this division was fighting. Correct. Right. What was their main function? Were they infantry? Were they um, anti-aircraft gunners? Were they artillery, um, or or were they all of the above? What what exactly were they doing? Well, it was it was an infantry division, but it was mechanized. They had uh, some uh, some uh, cannon and and, and uh, some support, um, mechanized support. But many of the cannons were actually horse drawn. So they fought as an infantry group. They fought in the Battle of Brody uh, to try and plug a gap uh, that uh, had been created when uh, the Red Army was advancing. And out of 10,000 who went in, only 3,000 came out. 7,000 were either killed or disappeared into the underground. Um, And then at that point in 1944, the division was reformed. It was, uh, people were added to it from various units and the reform division then was sent to Slovakia because there had been a mutiny uh, in the Slovak Slovak army. Uh, that mutiny was supported by two airborne divisions from the Soviet Union. And then they were shipped quickly to Yugoslavia where they fought Tito's partisans and then shipped back again to Austria where they held the front against the advancing Red Army. Uh, and took some very heavy casualties at that point. About 1,600 men were, were killed. Then they quickly, when the war ended, they quickly moved uh, west and uh, surrendered to the British or, or the Americans. I'm sure you've heard um, or seen some of the interviews that people have given um, from Canada's Jewish community who are quite upset Um over not only Yaroslav Hunka being applauded in uh, Parliament, but that so many members of the division were allowed into the country. I think it was Irving Abella in an old interview said, it was easier to get into Canada uh, after the war if you were a member of the SS than if you were a Jew. And that uh, the Canadian officials um, actually... You know, if you could show your SS tattoo, that showed that you were a good anti-communist and so welcomed into the country. There's obviously a lot of hurt and a lot of pain there. Um, what would what would you say to 
to those people who are are upset by by the history and who think that um, we let in a group of people that that we shouldn't have or or, or that this Galatia division was uh, actually part of war crimes, which which you dispute. Well, I'm not sh- quite sure that uh, they did not commit war crimes. Some there are some incidents that are still being investigated uh, and looked into, but they have been cleared. Essentially, the division per se has been cleared. However, obviously, they were part of the German war machine, and one could say even more. Um, when they were holding the front in Slovakia. There were still 30,000 Jews in Slovakia that were being rounded up and sent for destruction to Germany. So in a sense, they were uh, holding the front while Jews were still being uh, found and destroyed. And in that sense, they were complicit in the Holocaust. That's, you know, that's, that's a fact. So one has to understand the, you know, the, the, uh, the conditions and the reasons why these people uh, signed up, but also one has to understand uh, the role they played, uh, directly or indirectly. And the, one, one has to sympathize with uh, uh, Jews who saw what was happening, understand what was happening, and can see that these, these men made the, a choice to support Germany. But I will say... Um, one thing about the uh, the entry into Canada, there were many, many groups who were allowed to emigrate at the end of the war. There were, after all, 38 Waffen-SS divisions. There were many Wehrmacht divisions. Many of these people were uh, had been prisoners of war. They were all released. They were all, all allowed to emigrate if they if they so wanted. Some were checked, many were not. In fact, you know, the German war machine and the German economy, the German society continued to function throughout the war, and millions of people were involved in um, in uh, allowing that uh, that that uh, society to to exist. Many of them also emigrated at the end of the war. So, if you're talking about checking thoroughly. You should talk about checking all of these people. Um, there is, because we are now far from the war, many, many decades later, there is less knowledge about the details of and the atmosphere in which uh, uh, these events happened. Well, what, we also, what was the thinking of the Canadian government at the time then towards this division? Well, they decided in 1950, because it had been checked, uh, as far as they were concerned, uh, it had been checked by the British uh, and previously by other groups, that uh, uh, that was good enough for them. Uh, The British, however, um, were not entirely frank about the way to describe the division. Uh, The British themselves wanted to be rid of uh, uh, these prisoners of war, uh, and to move on. So, so did, let, let me just stop you there to clarify something. Did the, 
I, I think the number is about 2,000 members of the division came to Canada. Is that accurate? Uh, it could have been that. Were, were, were they people who were um, held by the British as prisoners of war? They, they were in the United Kingdom at that point? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, they were originally held in, until from 1945 to 1947. They were held in Rimini in Italy. Yes. Then there was uh, a possibility that they would be sent back when the British left because the Italian government was under pressure to send back anybody who had uh, worn uh, a, a German uniform. The British, however, had seen what happened to prisoners or f people who had fought uh, in German uniform when they handed them back. And quite often they back were Back to the Soviets. Back to the Soviets. They were machine gunned. For example, there were about 40,000 Cossacks, so-called Cossacks, uh, Russians from the Don area, who were uh, handed over, and uh, they were simply machine gunned. Uh, British officers had seen this happen and were appalled. Uh, they, they, they did not want um, this to happen to the Ukrainians. And at that point also, uh, the Vatican intervened uh, uh, General Anders, Vladislav Anders of the Polish Second Corps intervened. Many of his soldiers were f uh, people from Galicia. They had been part of that group that had been arrested and sent to Siberia by the Soviets. And then when the German-Soviet war began, Stalin said that they, could, they would be allowed out of the Siberian camps if they fought in an army that the Polish uh, general, Anders, was creating. He had been plucked from a concentration camp and told that he could be a, a general. They fought very bravely. They, they fought uh, all the way through uh, uh, up southern Italy. And uh, these people were had some sympathy for their fellow Galicians who were in Ukrainians in the Galician army. In fact, there are some amazing stories where the father was in the Anders army after being in Siberia, fought on the Allied side. The son had joined the division and was imprisoned in, in Rimini in Italy. And the father was sent to, to, to guard, to, to sit outside the, the, the barbed wire, the cage, and could speak to his son. These people helped, uh, and there was, as you said, the Cold War was beginning, and attitudes towards these people had changed. So you, you had said that the British weren't forthright. So did, they didn't tell their Canadian allies the full story then. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you look at the documentation, there is uh, some fudging uh, of the issue. Uh, so they were not, uh, they would say that the, this was uh, not quite uh, a Waffen-SS division, that, they, that this was a Wehrma Wehrmacht division. Uh, there was some... Trickery, I think, that uh, that was involved. 
In fact, uh, however, the Ukrainians did not want to be in the Waffen-SS. They wanted to be uh, a regular Wehrmacht division. And they were told for administrative purposes that the only, the only division they could join, um, um, the only place where Slavs, uh, non-Germans, non-Germanic units could join would be the Waffen-SS. So this was used... Uh, uh, in a way to make it appear that these people were not uh, quite what, uh, what, 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 what they were. What do you say about issues like the, the monuments in, uh, in Oakville, in, um, in Edmonton, that have been described as uh, glorifying Nazis? What, because they talk about this uh, division, and in, in fact, you know, stories about it being a uh, a Nazi uh, war monument. Um, I know you you write about it in the book about how uh, the Russians, when when this came out, uh, I guess about six years ago now, uh, the Russian embassy was quick to link it to Christian Freeland and say, "See, um, the Ukrainians are a bunch of Nazis." What do you say about that? Well, to take your last point, uh, that is exactly what um, uh, what is happening. Uh, this this issue is being instrumentalized to try and link the present struggle in Ukraine for for in, independence and for uh, for a democratic society to try and link it to the Second World War and to and to uh, you know blacken. Uh, all the Ukrainian emigration, or any any critic of uh, Putin's regime, that's certainly the case. But the bigger issue, the the more important issue right now, is that um, these monuments should not be in any way places of celebration. You know, these soldiers have a, a right to uh, to rest in peace. But what is happening? Uh, around these monuments is that they're being used first of all to um, stoke this uh, uh, anti-Ukrainian hysteria but secondly also because some people uh, uh, in uh, in far-right communities are actually uh, coming to the monument to celebrate uh, uh, Nazism and this has created a, a terrible situation. Uh, I think basically the 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 uh, the solution to this is to prevent any kind of uh, celebrations around around these monuments or or any kind of uh, uh, opportunity for propaganda to be uh, to be uh, to exploit these monuments. Uh, I, I think eventually, probably. They will have to be either covered up or uh, removed, just to prevent this ha- from happening. That's that's really uh, uh, the the bottom line. Professor Shandri, it's uh, it's been a fascinating conversation, and I'm sure we've kicked off a debate, and we'll both hear from lots of people that uh, that have listened to this. But you won't be shocked by that because, as you said in your book, this is perhaps one of the most uh, controversial divisions. Um, that came out of the war and uh, and the controversy and the debate will continue. 
Yeah, I, I was surprised I called it in, in the maelstrom. And uh, the legacy of the division has been been vigorously debated for a very long time. And now this, uh, this incident uh, in the Canadian Parliament has uh, put, put the division back in the maelstrom of public debate in, uh, with a vengeance. All right. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. This has been the Full Comment Podcast, a post-media production. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Amazon Music. And you can help us out by giving us a rating, leaving a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.